Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Should a Tudor invasion succeed? Evidently, Richard was acutely concerned for his crown. According to Polydore Virgil, the king remained vexed, rested, and tormented in mind, with fear almost perpetually, of the Earl Henry and his confederate's return, wherefore he had a miserable life. Yet he was no more nervous than Tudor, who was, Virgil continued, pinched by the very stomach at the rumour concerning Richard's intentions toward Elizabeth of York, and who had also to deal with the wavering of Elizabeth's half-brother, the Marquis of Dorset, who flirted with returning to England as a loyal subject of the king. By the height of summer, it was clear that both sides needed a resolution. Henry in particular sensed that his chance to strike at Richard was both fleeting and immediate. He borrowed a modest 40,000 livres tournois from Charles VIII, took counsel with his uncle Jasper and the other leading exiles, fitted out a small fleet with 4,000 men, some of them dredged hurriedly up from the jails of Normandy, and set sail from Honfleur at the mouth of the River Seine. They were headed for the western tip of Wales, the land from which Henry's grandfather, Owen Tudor, had first emerged, where Edmund and Jasper Tudor had held sway during Henry VI's reign, and from which the Tudors had fled when Edward IV had retaken his realm in 1471. Their journey, propelled by a helpful southerly breeze, took seven days, plenty of time for those aboard the invasion fleet to consider the enormity of what they were about to attempt. Henry Tudor was described succinctly by Philippe de Comines as being without power, without money, without right to the crown of England. Nevertheless, on Sunday, August the 7th, 1485, this unlikely claimant to England's crown landed at Mill Bay, near Milford Haven, waded through the salt water onto wet Welsh sand, knelt and kissed the ground, and uttered the words of Psalm 43, Judge me, O Lord, and plead my cause. His time had finally come. Chapter 19 War or Life They marched through the mountains beneath the sign of the dragon. Henry Tudor and his allies had been on the road for a little over a week, travelling on a cautious route and at a slow pace through the rolling and occasionally inhospitable Welsh countryside. Frenchmen, Welshmen, English exiles, and a smattering of Scots made up this hotchpotch army. But above their heads, 
The banners of the campaign included a few clear symbols of their intent. The cross of St. George and the dun cow of the Beaufort family spoke of royal intent and Lancastrian ancestry. The red dragon against a background of green and white reminded those who passed by that as a Welshman, Henry could connect himself not only with Henry VI, who had granted Edmund and Jasper Tudor the right to use it as a heraldic symbol, but with ancient kings of the Britons, such as Cadwallader, whose exploits were celebrated by the bards. Their route during the first week of their march had taken them northeast from Mill Bay via Haverford Fest to Cardigan, then hugging the coastline up to Aberystwyth. This was by no means the most direct path toward Henry's sworn enemy, the man whom his letters to local Welsh gentry described as that odious tyrant Richard, late Duke of Gloucester, usurper of our said right. But it was the safest road to take, partly because South Wales was well secured against the Tudors, and partly because Henry entertained a keen hope that his stepfather, Lord Stanley, and his brother, Sir William Stanley, would be willing to add their substantial military might from their estates in North Wales and Northwest England. On Sunday, August the 14th, the invaders were at Machamlith, the small town in Dovey Valley that had in Owain Glyndur's day been the rebel capital of the whole country, and from which it was possible to turn directly east and traverse the mountains of mid-Wales, descending through the marches to reach England by the fertile plain of Shropshire. Even in the height of summer this was rugged and difficult countryside, but after three days Henry's men had dragged their feet and their guns over the high ground and were approaching Shrewsbury. The English Midlands and their chance at seizing the realm opened up before them. Of all the men and women who had fought for the English crown during the struggles of the century, perhaps none were less familiar to the majority of that crown's subjects than Henry Tudor. A thin face with high cheekbones framed a long, thin nose, a feature shared by his mother, Margaret Beaufort. Round, somewhat hooded eyes formed a tight triangle with his thin, downward-sloping mouth, and dark, wavy hair tumbled down almost to his shoulders. Having barely lived in England, his preferred language was French, but he had already adopted the style and bearing of a crowned king, and his letters calling for support suggest that he was more than comfortable in the language of imperious persuasion that was expected of an English monarch. We will and pray you, and on your allegiance straightly charge, and command you that in all haste possible ye assemble your folks and servants, defensibly arrayed for war, and come to us for our aid and assistance. For the recovery of the crown and of our realm of England to us of right appertaining, he wrote from Hamlith, to potential supporters among the Welsh gentry. To many of these Welsh supporters, he also dangled the alluring prospect of the Principality's ancient liberties and legal freedoms being restored, should he be victorious. All the same, the Tudor rebellion struck most contemporaries as so unlikely that reinforcements trickled rather than flowed to his side. 
As Henry rode through the mountains, word reached Richard III that the attack he had long anticipated had finally arrived. He was in Nottinghamshire during mid-August, and according to one well-informed chronicler, rejoiced at the news, celebrating Henry's arrival as the long-wished-for day for him to triumph with ease over so contemptible a faction. The Stanley family was the one serious ally whom the Tudors could hope to recruit, but Richard had taken precautions to secure their loyalty. While Lord Stanley was absent from the king's side in Lancashire, he had agreed to leave his son and heir, George, Lord Strange, under royal supervision. Richard didn't trust the Stanleys. Indeed, as a precautionary measure, he had declared Sir William and his associate, Sir John Savage, to be traitors, simply as a warning to others who might consider joining the rebellion. But he had enough of a hold on them to feel that they would think long and hard before attacking their anointed king. All the same, as the Tudors came down out of the mountains into England, they found that their association with the Stanleys was beginning to work in their favour. On their first arrival at Shrewsbury, on Wednesday, August the 17th, the bailiff, Thomas Mitten, lowered the portcullis against them, swearing an oath they would have to walk over his belly, implying his dead body, before they were allowed to pass through the streets of the town. After a short impasse, word reached Mitten from the Stanleys that Tudor was to be afforded civility and assistance. The rebel army marched through, and in order to protect his oath and his honour, Mitten lay on the ground in front of Henry and allowed him to step over his very much alive belly as he went. Little by little, Henry was gaining momentum. Although the nobility remained thinly represented, of the highest ranks only John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, was with him, the rebel army slowly began to expand with gentlemen who either had connections to the Stanley family or else remained loyal to the memory of Edward IV, Buckingham, and even the Duke of Clarence. The Stanleys themselves had 3,000 men in the field, although Lord Stanley refused to formally join his forces with the 5,000 or so who were directly behind the Tudors. On Friday, August the 19th, they were at Stafford. The following day, they had reached Lichfield. The day after that, Henry had his army camped around Atherstone, near the border between Warwickshire and Leicestershire. By this stage, Richard III had travelled from Nottingham to Leicester and had somehow scrambled together an army described as greater than had ever been seen before in England, collected together in behalf of one person. The king rode out of Leicester at the head of his army on the morning of Sunday, August the 21st, with the Duke of Norfolk and Earl of Northumberland by his side and the crown on his head. Amid the greatest pomp, and with mighty lords, knights, and esquires, together with a countless multitude of the common people. Richard rode west toward the place where his scouts told him Henry Tudor was waiting. By nightfall on Sunday, little more than a mile separated the armies of King and Pretender, both of whom were now ready to meet their fate. 
Richard III woke early on the morning of Monday, August the 22nd, out of a fitful sleep, plagued by a terrible dream in which he saw horrible images of evil spirits haunting evidently about him, and they wouldn't let him rest. It was so early that the king couldn't find breakfast in his camp, nor was there a chaplain yet awake who could sing the mass. But the discomfort of the night didn't dissuade the king from battle. Rather, it hardened his mood. His enemy was, to Richard's mind, the last true obstacle to the final security of his kingdom. He declared it was his intention, if he should prove the conqueror, to crush all the supporters of the opposite faction, not least because he believed that Henry Tudor would do exactly the same if the roles were reversed. That day he told his companions he would make end either of war or life. He decided at some point that he would ride into battle wearing his royal crown. Everything he was, everything he possessed, would be visibly at stake. The two armies were camped on either side of a place known locally as the Reedsmere, a marshy plain below the sharp slope of Ambien Hill, set in verdant countryside, dotted here and there with towns and little villages, including Market Bosworth, some way off to the north. The royal camp was pitched at Sutton Cheney, near the hill. Perhaps fifteen thousand men stretched out across the fields, all of them having been encouraged to feed and refresh themselves ahead of the travails that lay ahead. Morale was reasonable, for none had been in the field for more than a matter of a couple of weeks, but spirits had all the same been dented by a pair of high-profile embarrassments. The royal captives, Sir Thomas Boucher and Walter Hungerford, both imprisoned in the tower on suspicion of plotting in 1483, had escaped while being moved in custody and managed to join with Henry Tudor. It was also suggested, some time after the battle, that during the night before the battle the Duke of Norfolk's tent was graffitied with the defeatist slogan, Jack of Norfolk, be not too bold, for Dickon thy master is bought and sold. The light had barely come up on the camp, when from the vantage point of Ambien Hill the enemy was spotted on the move, marching northeast in battle formation across the cornfields that lay between Ambien Hill and the villages of Atterton and Fenny Drayton. Henry Tudor had beaten Richard's men to the start, and now the king's men scrambled to be ready for the oncoming assault. Richard's army certainly appeared as ferocious as the sleepless king who commanded it. Arranged in a single line, they stretched out for miles, horse and foot, alongside one another, swords and sharp arrowheads gleaming, and dozens of lean barrels, serpentine guns chained together alongside their fatter cousins, the bombards. Some of the infantry carried handguns, and when all the royal gunners began to fire, the early morning air filled with caustic smoke, and the field rung with deafening booms. As the arrows were unleashed, the thunder would have been joined by the snap of bowstrings and the deadly fizz of wood and fletchings arcing toward vulnerable flesh. 
The rebels' vanguard was led by the wily and experienced John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. The left and right were led by Henry's allies John Savage and Gilbert Talbot, respectively. Henry himself was behind the lines, surrounded by a very few men grouped around the Tudor standard-bearer, Sir William Brandon. Mercifully for Richard III, there were no Stanleys among the rebel ranks. Although Lord Stanley and Sir William were present near the battlefield, they kept their forces mustered separately, arrayed about a mile away from where they could watch the battle unfold before committing themselves. This wasn't entirely useful to anyone but the Stanleys themselves. In a fit of pique, King Richard sent a message that Lord Stanley's son, Lord Strange, whom he had brought as his hostage to the field, should be summarily beheaded to punish the Stanleys for their lack of commitment. But as the chaos, thunder, and panic of battle unfolded, the orders were never carried out. What occurred subsequently is hard to piece together. Henry's vanguard under Oxford used the marshiest part of the field as a natural defence on their right flank, and came upon the royal vanguard as they ran down Ambien Hill. The two crunched into each other, their helmets pulled down over their faces, fighting fiercely hand to hand. Oxford had ordered the rebel troops to fight in tight clusters, no more than ten foot from the standards, according to Virgil. This caused some confusion to their enemies, watched by Henry Tudor from behind his lines and King Richard, observing from higher ground on the hill. Henry Tudor and his personal guard were still bunched in a small group below his rival royal standard. To Richard, never short of personal bravery, this seemed to offer an opportunity to end the battle in short order. His enemy was a man who had lived twenty-eight years without ever commanding troops. He, Richard, was a toughened veteran of numerous difficult battles. Inflamed with ire, he struck his horse with the spurs and charged around the side of the vanguard toward where his enemy was positioned. His crown was still on top of his helmet. Richard slammed into Henry's men with lethal speed. His assault caused such terror and damage to the rebel leader that his standard-bearer was killed, and the standard that marked out the commander's position was hurled to the ground. This was a very perilous situation for any army to endure, since the fall of the standard was generally associated with the defeat and probable death of the man below it. But Henry clung on, although his own soldiers were now almost out of hope of victory, and his tenacity was rewarded. Seeing Henry in trouble, perhaps also having heard that Lord Strange's sentence of death had been executed, Sir William Stanley charged his reserve army into the melee, casting in his lot with the Tudors at the last possible moment. Three thousand fresh men poured onto the field, scattering the royal army in despair and overwhelming Richard as he fought in plain sight of his rival. At some point it seems that Richard must have either lost or removed his battle helmet. It cost him his life. He was struck by several glancing blows, which cut his scalp and took small chunks of skull away. Then he was dealt a heavy blow directly on the top of the head, 
by a small pointed blade which pierced his skull right through. Finally, a heavy bladed weapon, it may well have been the wickedly curved large blade of a halberd, cleaved through the air and removed a large chunk at the base of his skull, opening a huge wound perhaps severe enough to kill him instantaneously. King Richard alone was killed fighting manfully in the thickest press of his enemies, wrote Virgil. He died, if not a hero, then certainly a staunch and courageous soldier. An end to war or life, the king had cried, on the eve of the battle. Fate had chosen for him. As one writer at the time marveled, a king of England slain in a pitched battle in his own kingdom has never been heard of since the time of King Harold. His death brought the battle which came to be known as the Battle of Bosworth to an end. Once the fighting had ceased, King Richard was stripped of his armour, slung over a horse, and taken to Leicester to be buried in the nave of the Church of the Greyfriars. Somewhere on his final journey, his body was abused and humiliated. A knife or dagger was stabbed so hard through the naked buttocks that it damaged the bone of his pelvis. Then his slashed and bloodied body was slung into a hastily dug shallow grave. God that is all-merciful, wrote one chronicler, forgive him his misdeeds. Once the Battle of Bosworth was won, Henry Tudor thanked God, clambered up the nearest hillside, and addressed the men who stood exhausted before him on the battlefield. He thanked the nobles and gentlemen who had fought beside him, commanded the wounded to be cared for, and the dead to be buried, and then received the acclaim of his soldiers who bellowed, God save King Henry, at the tops of their voices. Lord Stanley, standing close by, saw his moment. Richard III's battered crown, dislodged along with his helmet in the melee, had been found among the spoil in the field. As kingmaker, Stanley exercised his right to place the hollow crown on Henry Tudor's head, as though he had been already, by commandment of the people, proclaimed king. Then the victorious party left the field, making their slow and regal way toward London. Henry VII officially dated his reign from Sunday, August the 21st, the day before the Battle of Bosworth, a novelty that allowed him to present victory as divine sanction for his kingship. Accordingly, since his reign had been approved by God, Henry had been crowned in the most informal manner by Stanley, and his rival Richard III was dead. Quite a luxury for a usurper, he was prepared to delay his official coronation by more than two months. Partly this was for safety, since London in the late summer of 1485 was plagued with a sweating sickness, whereof died much people suddenly. The date for Henry's crowning was therefore set for Sunday, October the 30th, 1485, which allowed enough time for the epidemic to depart and a splendid ceremony to be prepared. Henry realized that he was a political unknown whose reign demanded brilliant public spectacle in order to demonstrate that he was no interloper, 
but rather a worthy successor to both Henry VI and Edward IV. In that sense, extravagance was a political necessity. Accounts of the coronation were drawn up by Sir Robert Willoughby, and they spoke of a flurry of activity among the goldsmiths, cloth merchants, embroiderers, silk women, tailors, labourers, boatmen and saddlers of London. Instructions went out for yards of velvet, satin and silk in royal purple, crimson and black, which were then run up into beautiful jackets, hose, hats, robes, wall hangings, cushions and curtains. Henry's henchmen were ordered hats plumed with ostrich feathers, boots made from fine Spanish leather and striking costumes of black and crimson. Even the horses were smartly dressed. Their stirrups were covered in red velvet, while tassels and silk buttons adorned their halters. More than fifty pounds were spent commissioning a hundred and five silver and gilt portcullises, the family symbol of Margaret Beaufort, for distribution to favoured guests. This was far more than was spent even on the four ceremonial swords carried in Henry's possession, two with sharpened points and two blunt. In total, more than £1,500 was spent on the solemnities and celebrations. From the embroiderers of London, the new king purchased great decorative trappings and hangings, presenting most clearly the symbols of the new reign. One item in the royal accounts for the coronation stands out. Item to John Smith, broderer for embroidering of a trapoir of blue velvet with red roses with gold of Venice and dragon's feet, four pounds, thirteen shillings and fourpence. Many emblems were displayed at the coronation. Some were traditionally English, like the arms of St. Edmund and St. Edward the Confessor. Others were generically chivalric, such as the trapeur with falcons, which was embroidered by one Hugh Wright. But several were particular to the new Tudor king and his family. The arms of Cadwallader advertised Henry's connection with the ancient British-Welsh kings of Arthurian law. That claim had also been made by the Yorkists, who proudly traced their ancient roots through the Mortimer line. A similar lineage was suggested by the many images of red fiery dragons and their feet. But the greatest sums were spent commissioning red roses, detailed with gold. The image of the rose was far from new. The white rose had been one of the chief badges favoured by the House of York, along with the golden sun, with which it was often combined. It was true that red roses had occasionally been associated with Lancastrian kings since Henry IV's lifetime, while the Welsh poet Robin Thee had associated the Tudors with a symbol hankering for the time when red roses will rule in splendour. But never had a king of England so consciously or prominently adopted the red rose as his most visible emblem. The coronation went off with appropriate pomp with the most prominent roles carried out by the small group of English nobles whom Henry could count as his intimates. These included his uncle Jasper Tudor, now Duke of Bedford, his father-in-law Thomas, Lord Stanley, who became Earl of Derby, and Sir Edward Courtney, another of the Breton exiles, 
who was awarded his ancestor's old title of Earl of Devon. All three played important parts in the pageantry, as did John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, whose loyalty was rewarded at the coronation feast, where he placed the crown on the king's head. All had been well rewarded for their long-suffering and faith in the Tudor cause, but none was so well rewarded as Margaret Beaufort, the king's mother. According to her late-life confessor, John Fisher, she wept marvellously at the moment the crown was placed on her son's head. Margaret held the title of Countess of Richmond and was given back the lands that had been placed in her husband's name by Richard III. She was declared femme sole, a special legal status that gave her total independence and given a beautiful Thameside mansion at Cold Harbour, which served as her main London residence. But the sight of her son, the boy who had been torn devastatingly from her womb in a cold, plague-ridden Welsh castle when she was just thirteen years old, being crowned king was surely the greatest reward that a mother could desire. Throughout Henry's reign, Margaret was treated as a sort of demi-queen, allowed to dress in the manner of a consort and, in her later years, to sign herself Margaret R., an explicitly royal style. Her son consulted her in virtually all matters, from foreign policy to legal affairs and internal security. Her manor of Collie Weston in Northamptonshire would be palatially refurbished and served as a base for the crown in the East Midlands. She was entrusted with queenly status and authority, and she exercised it with relish. She wasn't, of course, the queen. Henry VII has sworn a solemn oath in 1483 that he would marry Elizabeth of York. Now that he was king, he was bound to make good on his word. On December the 10th, at Henry's first Parliament, the Speaker, Thomas Lovell, requested that the King's Royal Highness should take to himself that illustrious Lady Elizabeth, daughter of King Edward IV, as his wife and consort, whereby, by God's grace, many hope to see the propagation of offspring from the stock of kings to comfort the whole realm. The King, sitting enthroned before the whole gathering, told Parliament that he was content to proceed according to their desire and request. The wedding was to be held on January the 18th, 1486. Henry's marriage to Elizabeth wasn't simply a matter of his word or of popular opinion. It was vital to his whole royal manifesto. It was no secret that his claim in blood as a Lancastrian king was weak, he was not a sufficiently obvious heir to Henry VI to be accepted wholeheartedly for who he was. In large part, Henry had been made king because he was a candidate for those seeking a replacement for Edward IV. Marrying Edward's eldest daughter was essential to holding that support and trying to restore some stability to the English royal line. It should be noted that Henry ensured he had been crowned and acclaimed as king in his own right by the judgment of God 
before he went about marrying Elizabeth. He couldn't afford to be seen as purely the puppet of the Yorkists, still less of ruling by right of his wife. As a group of English ambassadors were instructed to tell the Pope in 1486, Henry had won the throne of his ancestors by divine aid. He was marrying Elizabeth to put an end to civil war. Nevertheless, he used the marriage to project a subtle and effective political message, summed up in a striking visual motif. His marriage was represented by another rose. This time it wasn't the famous old White Rose of York or the rather hastily adopted Red Rose of Lancaster, but a perfect blend of the two. The Tudor Rose, white superimposed upon red to form a visual emblem of union, instantly comprehensible to even the dullest mind. The Tudor Double Rose expressed an instant analysis both of the cause of the wars that had torn England to pieces during the troubled 15th century and of their solution. Everything, the Rose said, was down to the split between the houses of Lancaster and York. Everything, the Rose also said, was now solved by the two houses' binding union. Or, as the contemporary writer and court poet Bernard André wrote, It was decreed by harmonious consent that one house would be made from two families that had once striven in mortal hatred. This was a simplistic reading of history, to say the least, but it was one that would endure for centuries. The wedding was celebrated in the customary fashion, with wedding torches, marriage bed and other suitable decorations, followed by great magnificence at the royal nuptials and the Queen's coronation. Gifts flowed freely on all sides and were showered on everyone, while feasts, dances and tournaments were celebrated with liberal generosity to magnify the joyful occasion. The new queen fell pregnant soon after her wedding night, and the royal couple departed on progress to the north in March 1486 to demonstrate to the kingdom at large the power and good fortune of the new king. They encountered a few minor disturbances as they went, but largely the countryside was peaceful. And at York, heartland of the former regime, the first city pageant that greeted the new king was a mechanical device displaying a gigantic red rose which merged with a white rose before other bountiful flowers emerged, showing the rose to be the principle of all flowers. Finally, a crown descended from a cloud to cover the whole scene. The message was clear. Queen Elizabeth went into labour for the first time in September 1486 in St. Swithin's Priory, Winchester. It was no random setting. The former capital of England had close connections to Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, and the Queen's lying in was deliberately located there, in the hope that she would bear a son and heir whose life and reign would rekindle the glorious past. Ever since the earliest days of the Plantagenets, there had been a taste among the rich and educated English elite 
for national histories that began with the deeds of Brutus, Cadwallader, and Arthur. The fashion was as strong as ever. In 1485, Thomas Mallory's More to Darthur had been printed by Caxton, providing a new compendium of tales from the days of Camelot. The origins and ideals of English kingship lay in these long-distant histories of the island, and Henry VII had made it his business to be closely associated with it. That extended explicitly to attempting to produce his own heir to the crown in a place with as much historical significance as possible. In this pageant of dynastic creation, Elizabeth played her part perfectly. On September the 20th, she gave birth to a healthy son who was christened inevitably Arthur. Let the priests chant fitting hymns with great praise and entreat blessed spirits to favor the boy, that he may magnify the splendid deeds of his parent and exceed his ancestors in piety and arms, born Bernard André. Arthur was very quickly invested with all the trappings of princely status. At his birth, he became Duke of Cornwall. When he was three years old, he was created Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester, and made a Knight of the Bath. When he was still not quite five, he became a Knight of the Garter, taking the garter stall at Windsor that had lain vacant since the disappearance of Edward V. He was appointed as Warden of the North, with his practical duties carried out by Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey. He was named as a King's Lieutenant when Henry VII travelled out of England. After infancy, the boy was tutored by the same Bernard André, who had written such exultations on the occasion of his birth. André reported that his student was vigorous, quick to learn and well-versed in the classics. Henry wished to establish his son in exactly the same role as the young Edward V, setting up a prince's council at Ludlow to deploy royal rule over Wales and the marches. Just as Edward V's council had been run by a trusted uncle, Earl Rivers, so Prince Arthur's authority was wielded by his great-uncle, Jasper Tudor, Duke of Bedford, a man who was in many ways the most loyal of them all. Prince Arthur was soon joined by a younger sister, Margaret, born at Westminster on November the 28th, 1489. A brother, Prince Henry, was born on June the 28th, 1491, and a second sister, Mary, would be born on March the 18th, 1496. In the case of the second prince, Henry VII once again followed the protocol of Edward IV's time. Little Henry was made warden of the Cinque Ports and Marshal of England at around the time of his first birthday, and the boy was given the important and evocative title of Duke of York. While celebrations attended his official investiture on All Hallows' Day, November the 1st, 1494. The king laid on a grand three-day tournament with glittering prizes, including heavy gold rings set with rubies, emeralds, and diamonds. Great feasts and dances were held. Twenty noble sons were knighted, and virtually the entire political community of the realm 
attended a solemn service in the Parliament Chamber at Westminster, where the little boy was paraded in his finery alongside his parents, both of them wearing their crowns. The story of Henry's reign, played out in a series of pageants and state occasions, was a simple one. Through his family, he was healing the kingdom. Yet for all Henry VII and Queen Elizabeth's success in producing heirs, publicizing their union and plastering the country with joined roses, there remained inevitably those who wished the turmoil and violence that had tormented England for so long could somehow be rekindled, that another usurper family could be overthrown and yet another king placed beneath the crown. And indeed, Prince Henry's creation as Duke of York, when he was aged just three, was a direct response to a very specific plot against his father. Three generations of English history had made it inevitable that anyone with even the slightest trace of old royal blood in their veins could be a plausible candidate for kingship. A fact that seemed to be true whether that person was alive or dead. Chapter 20 Envy Never Dies On Ascension Day in 1487, in Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin, a young man enjoyed a rather unexpected coronation. Christchurch was, beside Dublin Castle and the town's other cathedral, dedicated to St. Patrick, the greatest building in Dublin, and by extension, one of the most magnificent in all of Ireland. And on Sunday, May the 24th, it was enjoying one of its most extraordinary moments, as a ten-year-old child, dazzlingly dressed and supported by Gerald Fitzgerald, Earl of Kildare, on John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, was crowned Edward VI, King of England and France. His name, or more likely his pseudonym, was Lambert Simnel. He could have been an orphan from Flanders or a boy called John from Oxfordshire. His father may have been a carpenter called Thomas Simnel, who specialized in fitting out the wooden components of musical organs for the college and churches of Oxford and its flourishing university. He may, alternatively, have been a baker or a cobbler. Of his mother, very little is known. What was known is that he had turned up in Dublin the previous autumn, and since that moment had been exciting the local population with his claims about his background and personal history. He was a comely youth, with courtly manners, according to one writer, and no doubt he looked radiant in the spring light of the cathedral when a small circle of gold taken from the head of a statue of the Virgin Mary was placed on his head, and subsequently when he was carried through the city streets on the shoulders of a local lord to be toasted and feasted in the castle. The coins that were minted bearing his likeness were handsome, as was the great seal struck for him, showing the boy enthroned, holding orb and scepter. But this was most certainly not a king of England. Lambert Simnel was an impostor. He claimed to be Edward, Earl of Warwick, 
the young son of George, Duke of Clarence, who had lived for most of his life in confinement, variously at Sheriff Hutton, Margaret Beaufort's London Palace at Cold Harbour, and the Tower of London, which was precisely where he was on Ascension Day, 1487. Warwick had been damned by his father's rebellion against Edward IV. He had become a political and legal nonentity at the time of his father's execution and attainder, and was more or less ignored as first Richard, Duke of Gloucester, and then Henry Tudor states their claims to the crown. Were it not for Clarence's attainder, he would have been the last direct male member of the royal house of York. Instead, he had gone from being a prisoner of Richard III to a prisoner of Henry VII. Nevertheless, his impersonator had managed in less than a year to rally behind him a worrying degree of opposition to Henry VII's young reign. Ominously for the real king, that support was on the verge of bringing about a full-scale invasion of England. The earliest origins of the plot to present Simnel as Edward VI are obscure, but he seems to have emerged in Oxfordshire under the tutelage of a priest called William Simons and the political sponsorship of three renegades from Richard III's reign, Francis, Viscount Lovell, and Robert Stillington, Bishop of Bath, and John Delapole, Earl of Lincoln, who, as Richard III's nephew, had been heir presumptive at the time of the Battle of Bosworth. Most important of all, the plot was supported by Margaret, Dowager Duchess of Burgundy, Richard III's older sister, who ruled the Netherlands from the palace of Mechelen near Antwerp, on behalf of her son Philip the Handsome. Margaret was a superlative politician, and a strong, hard-nosed protector of what she believed to be her family's interests. Margaret refused to accept Henry VII's accession as king, and she extended the protection of her court to exiles who shared her aim of undermining the callow Tudor monarchy from afar. Henry VII was aware for some time that there was a pretender at loose in Ireland, his own experience must have prepared him for the fight that, having taken the crown by force, he would be tested by others seeking to do the same, and he reacted decisively as soon as he was tested. On February the 2nd, 1487, he had tried to snuff out the plotting by parading the real Edward from the tower through the streets of London. Subsequently, he had commanded that Elizabeth Woodville should be stripped of her estates and sent summarily to begin a luxurious retirement at Bermondsey Abbey, while her eldest son, the Marquis of Dorset, should be imprisoned in the Tower. There's nothing really to suggest that either were involved. Elizabeth, as the mother of the Queen, had very little motivation for plotting to overthrow the crown— still less in the name of Clarence's son. Dorset was temperamentally unreliable and hadn't been trusted to join the Bosworth campaign, but there's nothing really to suggest that he was scheming against the king. Nevertheless, Henry VII wasn't willing to take risks, and his caution was to prove absolutely correct. For on June the 4th, 1487, 
A large army of 1,500 German mercenaries and 4,000 Irish peasants landed at Furness on the Cumbrian coast in the far northwest of England. They were led by Simnel and his puppet master, John, Earl of Lincoln, and marshaled by the fearsome Swiss captain, Martin Schwarz, a man admirably skilled in the art of war. They marched rapidly across the lower Cumbrian mountains and the Pennines to Wensleydale, then skirted past York to Doncaster and on down in the direction of Newark. They kept up a terrific pace, and by June the 15th they were approaching the River Trent, the traditional dividing line between the north and south of England. There could be no hesitation on the king's part. This was a full-scale invasion, at least as severe as that which Henry himself had mounted two summers previously. The flames of beacons would have licked the air to publicize the presence of the hordes marching down the spine of England. The crown would once again be placed in jeopardy on the battlefield. Henry was at Kenilworth in the East Midlands when Simnel and Lincoln landed. He threw his realm immediately into a state of martial readiness. As a large royal army was assembled, Jasper, Duke of Bedford, and John, Earl of Oxford, were detailed to high command. The Stanleys were given an independent commission to defend their area of authority. Other loyal nobles, including Edward Grey, Lord Lyle, Edward Woodville, Lord Scales, Sir Rhys Ap Thomas, and the Earls of Shrewsbury and Devon were also summoned to serve at the fore. Proclamations demanding that public order be kept were sent around the country. The king himself rode to Coventry and on to Leicester, mustering his troops and readying himself for the assault. In Leicester, Richard III's corpse, not long in its rough grave at the Church of the Greyfriars, must have reminded the king of fortune's fickleness. Henry didn't stay long in the city. By the time Simnel and Lincoln's army had reached the Trent, he had amassed a large force of his own, perhaps twice the size of the invaders, which camped in the shadow of Nottingham Castle. It was the festival weekend of Corpus Christi, normally a time for processions, pageants, and mystery plays. But with foreign mercenaries on the rampage in the English Midlands, there was no thought for anything but beating back the enemy. Like doves before a black storm, wrote Bernard André, quoting Virgil's Aeneid, the men at once seized their weapons. Now the royal army advanced to meet the throngs of barbarians. The armies collided slightly southeast of Newark, near the lower bank of the meandering Trent, where the old Roman road cut a path directly from Leicester toward its endpoint at Lincoln. On Friday, June the 15th, the rebel army had camped overnight near the village of East Stoke. Around 8,000 of them, a band of highly trained foreign sellswords carrying halberds, crossbows, and long primitive rifles known as arquebuses or hackbutts. Half-naked Irish backwoodsmen with spears in their hands, and the various bands of northern English archers, horsemen, and gunners, the rebel leaders had managed to rally to their side on their long march south.
the royal army, packed with veterans of Bosworth and large noble retinues, overnighted around Radcliffe, several miles away in the direction of Nottingham. Henry's scouts, sent out at first light, hastened back to the camp to inform the king that they had seen rebel troops lined up in readiness to fight on the brow of a hill near East Stoke, a place that locals simply called Stoke. The long mornings of early June meant that even with a short march, Henry's men reached the field by around nine o'clock in the morning. As they arrayed in battle formation facing Simnel's far smaller force, Henry gave a speech. André later put a fancifully poetic version into the king's mouth, but the sentiment that Lincoln had brazenly taken up his cause in alliance with a trifling and shameless woman, Margaret of Burgundy, and that the king now trusted the same God who made us victors at Bosworth to give us triumph may well have been correct. The fight was begun by the rebels, with a swarm of crossbow bolts buzzing toward the royal lines. Fire was returned with interest by the archers in Henry VII's lines. Since many of the rank and file in Simnel and Lincoln's army were unarmored and vulnerable Irish fighters, better used to fighting hand to hand than withstanding volleys of arrows, the result was something close to a massacre. Rather than stand and suffer annihilation from long range, the rebels charged, and a violent melee at close quarters began. This close-range fighting suited both the sophisticated continental mercenaries and the fierce men from rural Ireland. The close fighting lasted for around an hour, but eventually Henry's superior numbers prevailed and the enemy began to disintegrate. Both sides suffered severe losses during the fighting, but it was on the rebel side that the most hideous carnage was wreaked. Perhaps 4,000 rebel fighters were killed, many from arrow wounds, their blood pooling in great puddles about the field, and running deep into a wooded hollow, afterward known as the Red Gutter. By the end, almost all of the rebel commanders and captains, including Lincoln, Martin Schwartz, and Lord Lovell, lay dead. Lambert Simnel was captured and taken to the tower, where he was treated chivalrously and eventually put to work in the king's service. Over the years, he would work his way up from the kitchen staff to work in falconry. Meanwhile, Henry VII paraded from the battlefield for the second time in as many years, and took his army to the city of Lincoln to celebrate by gorging on pike, capons, sheep and ox flesh, and hanging a few of the Irish and English rank and file who are dared to rebel. News of the victory was sent across the country, being particularly well received by Henry's supporters in London, where rumours circulated that the king had been defeated and killed. Far from it. Henry had trusted his reign to Providence, and Providence had once again appeared to vindicate his kingship. In retrospect, the Battle of Stoke would take on great significance, for it was the last battle that Henry or any other king of his dynasty would ever have to fight to save the crown. Yet, if the last clash of armies had taken place, 
the danger wasn't quite over. For almost as soon as Simnel had been captured, another pretender was produced, who would trouble the Tudor king for many years to come. Late in 1491, a Breton merchant by the name of Préjean Menot set sail from Lisbon to Ireland to sell silks. He washed up in Cork on the rugged southeastern tail of the country, a marshy town that spread out across several islands in which shops and houses stood higgledy-piggledy beside one another in a grid of warren-like streets. Here walked exiles and plotters, dissidents who had reason to hate the regime of the English king across the sea, and who were constantly on the watch for ways in which they could harm him. Accompanying Menno on his silk-selling mission was a young man from northern France, by the name of Pierre-Jean de Werbeck. Around seventeen years old, Pierre-Jean, his full name was mockingly part-anglicized by his enemies to Perkin Warbeck, had been born in Tournai, in the borderlands between France and the Netherlands, in about 1474. He had, said Polydore Virgil, a sharp and artful mind, and spoke English as well as several other languages. He had been apprenticed by his parents to other merchants, and from the age of about ten had lived an itinerant life in the trading towns of Western Europe, from Antwerp to Lisbon, where he met Manot. Finally, he arrived in Ireland, and came to the attention of the former mayor of Cork, John Atwater, a central figure in the network of Yorkist sympathizers in the town. Whether they saw in Warbeck a likeness to another famous young man, or whether they simply found him an enterprising lad who could be bent to their purpose, or both, they took him into their confidence, and convinced him to join them in a plot. Just as Lambert Simnel had been set up as an impostor, so too would Warbeck be. Only this time, rather than impersonating Edward, Earl of Warwick, the subject of the pretense would be the younger of the princes in the tower, Richard, Duke of York. Richard, had he been alive in late 1491, would have been seventeen, only a year or so older than Warbeck, and of the perfect age to assume the crown. It was a matter of general agreement that he was dead. Henry VII's first Parliament had condemned Richard III for shedding infant's blood, with many other wrongs, odious offences, and abominations against God and man. But since a body had never been found, nor a murderer brought to justice, it was still possible for those who wished to convince themselves that Richard had escaped the Tower to do so. This was precisely the willful gullibility on which the rebels of Cork depended when they set up Warbeck to impersonate the lost prince. Once he was established as Richard, Warbeck was shown to the Earl of Desmond, who responded with enthusiastic support. Then he was effectively hawked around Western Europe to anyone who wished to annoy and harass the Tudor king. The first to make use of him was the twenty-one-year-old Charles VIII of France, whose initial great project as king was to marry, more or less illegally, Anne of Brittany, four years old, and the heir to her ailing father Francis II's duchy. By marrying Anne, Charles intended to annex Brittany to France, 
and strike down forever its independence from the French crown. Henry VII was long acquainted with Duke Francis from his years in exile, and was understandably inclined to offer his support to the Bretons. Charles thus followed a well-trodden path in international diplomacy. Since the outbreak of the English civil wars in the 1450s, foreign rulers had understood the value of holding or sheltering alternative claimants to the English crown. Most recently, Francis II had harboured Henry Tudor, while the Dukes of Burgundy had supported Edward IV, and Margaret of Anjou had set up her renegade Lancastrian court during the 1460s under the protection of Louis XI of France. Most credible claimants to the crown had been killed, but that inconvenient fact aside, the policy was still a sensible one. Thus, from March 1492, Perkin Warbeck was put up by the French court. Henry treated Warbeck's accommodation in France as though it were an outright declaration of war. The previous year, Parliament had voted him a substantial grant of taxation for the purposes of sending troops to assist with the defence of Brittany. Now the money was turned to a more aggressive purpose. During the summer, English ships were sent to harass the Normandy coast. In September, although it was late in the year and a dangerous time for campaigning, Henry himself took ship on the south coast, heading to Calais, with a very large army of perhaps 15,000 men at his back. They spent a few days in camp before marching 20 miles down the coast to the nearest French city of significance, which happened to be the port town of Boulogne. Four columns of English troops descended on the town and laid siege to it. According to Virgil, there was a resolute garrison in the town which energetically defended it. But before there was a recourse to hard fighting, behold, suddenly a rumour spread through the camp that peace had been arranged. So it had. Charles's aim was to annex Brittany not to involve himself in a resuscitated version of the Hundred Years' War, and he was quite happy to pay Henry to accept his wishes. The result was the Treaty of Etaples, sealed on November 3, 1492, by which Henry stood down his invasion and withdrew from Breton matters, and Charles agreed to pay the English a vast indemnity for their war expenses, along with the promise of a very generous pension of 50,000 gold crowns a year for the following 15 years. Crucially, he also agreed to stop assisting pretenders to Henry's throne. After three months of campaigning and virtually no bloodshed, save for the death of a rather overzealous knight by the name of John Savage, who was ambushed by French soldiers in front of Boulogne, fought back rather too lustily rather than submitting, and was killed. Henry took his army back across the Channel in a sort of triumph. Henry's uncompromising actions against Warbeck and the French ensured that the court of Charles VIII was only a temporary stop for Warbeck. He wouldn't, however, be thwarted, and as the Treaty of Etaples closed doors in France, the pretender moved on, making his way to the court that had become the main European Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. 
Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.